Beloved congregation, turn with me again in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. Well, this morning we began to consider this great theme of spiritual growth. And we saw, I trust, that this is a most vitally important matter. This book of First Peter setting forth, as it does so beautifully, the character of genuine Christianity points out that the Christian, having been wrought through a mighty work of the Holy Spirit, having been born again unto a new life, is indeed given this principle of grace and life in order to mature. To mature in faith, to mature in hope and love and holiness and all obedience and all the fruits of the Spirit despite indwelling flesh and sin, despite manifold shortcomings, fears, doubts, backslidings. The trajectory of the Christian life is upward. It is upward unto heavenly glory. That city in God's presence in which no unclean thing dwells will be the habitation of all of God's elect. And contrary to the false teachings of the Roman Catholics, which imply that there must be a purging of sin in some kind of state after death in something called purgatory, purgatory, the Christian confesses on the basis of God's word that this life is the arena in which sin is purged from us. That maturation in grace, that growth in holiness and in the likeness of Jesus Christ, it is begun for the genuine believer. A glorious and a happy truth. God does not leave us as we were, But he who has begun this good work will see it through unto completion. And though none enters into heaven on anything other than the basis of Christ's finished work upon Calvary's cross, yet no man without this holiness, which testifies of their salvation in Christ, will see God. So I tell you, that this set forth before us, the growth and grace of the Christian is a most vital matter. We began to see it in principle, considering that enormous potential which we have in order to attain a greater measure of the Lord's work in us. But now I wish to focus not on this potential or even to stir up a desire for it merely, but to especially focus our attention on how the text directs us to the means by which 
God will bestow this unto his children. His newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Now the Greek in this portion of God's word is a bit interesting and and so some uh, English translations deal with it slightly differently. If you would be very literal about it, then you have the Greek word for logos or word used as a kind of descriptor or adjective of the word milk. And so you could translate this wordy milk or wise milk. And our translators of the King James, they seek to capture really the thought of it and describe it as milk of the word. At the same time, they apply this word, um, which means pure and undefiled, and they translate that sincere, sincere, sincere milk of the word. The reference here is to the word of God, only it is continuing on through the principle and uh, picture that we see in this verse. Just as a newborn babe must grow, so also they require nourishment, nourishment in order to so grow. For the child of God, it is the sincere milk of the word. With the Lord's help, let's consider something of that theme nourishment for spiritual growth, nourishment for spiritual growth. And I wish to draw out the general principle concerning the word of God as the basis for spiritual growth in this text, the general principle, and then move to some specific application. So general principle and then specific application. Well, when that newborn babe is born unto one of our families, is there more of an encouraging sight than seeing that little bundle of, of our hopes and joys and longings there in the flesh? A baby that has been prayed for, a baby that has been eagerly expected, can now be held and caressed in our arms. And to hold one of your children or grandchildren or relatives, it is such an incomparable joy. And of course, we know that they look so tremendously vulnerable, utterly dependent, that little child upon mother and father. I think this is perhaps in particular what the Lord Jesus spoke about when he said that if any of us would enter into the kingdom of God, we must become as little children, defenseless, helpless, dependent upon the care and the love of God. And I can't imagine that there is any parent, grandparent, uncle, or aunt here that 
would want anything but the best in nourishment for that little child. Or we care for that little baby, we would not just feed it anything or anything. We would not feed such a child upon just Coca-Cola. We would not feed it and nurture it with things that will bring it to a state of unhealth or even uh, even disastrous results in that baby's well-being. No, it is the milk from mother and later on more uh, substantial food suitable to its age and condition. And one of the questions that interpreters have struggled with this particular text is what exactly is the apostle driving at? Some would argue, for example, that the point being driven at is that these Christians, perhaps which the apostle is addressing, are in particularly immature And so they need some of the more elementary teachings from the Bible. The argument is that they're babies. They can't handle more solid food that might uh, entail more rigorous teaching. And so we're talking about the, the lowest bottom of what the word of God entails. This is similar to what you see, for example, in Hebrews chapter 5 in that passage where the uh, apostle uh, begins to rebuke his hearers for not being suitably mature to hear the doctrines concerning the priesthood of Melchizedek. And he goes on that digression there in Hebrews 5, verse 12, for when, for the time he ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again with the first principles of the oracles of God and are become more as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So there the apostle seems to be saying that there is an attainment in skill when reading and applying the word of God, which is uh, higher and more advanced than mere milk. This entails having a mind tuned to applying it to everyday holiness, being able to know good and evil. And those uh, believers to which the apostle to the Hebrews was writing were not uh, at that level. And so some may argue that that is also what the apostle Peter is uh, driving at. And I I would put to you that that is probably not the correct interpretation. For here, there is nothing in the context which would require you to believe that. Yes, there is a general rebuke to various sorts of sins which are unbefitting the mature Christian in verse 1. But we remember as well that this is a general epistle given to many different Christians and many different churches throughout Asia Minor. And so it certainly would have 
included the immature who were in these sins, but as well those who were of mature age, in a spiritual sense, that is. And so the more accurate way to understand this, I believe, is that there is a sense in which the Christian never gets beyond the milk of the word of God. That in comparison to the meat that we will attain to in the world to come and the greater and the fuller revelation of God in Christ, that the word of God and all of it is a sort of milk given unto us. And if there is a contrast as well um, to the old life included here, which may indeed be so, And we may follow John Calvin in saying that the contrast rather is with the dying old man that feasts upon these these wickednesses of guile and hypocrisy and envy and evil speaking in verse 1. A contrast, I say, between that and the simplicity of the Christian, the newborn babe of Christ, as it were, taking in all the word of God in Utter simplicity, taking in the wisdom and truth of the Lord. This, whether a new Christian who is struggling in the things of God, whether a Christian who is advanced with many years walking with the Lord, whether it is a Christian that is settled and established in the way of holiness and godliness, or one who is struggling and plagued with many doubts and fears. The remedy for one and all is this, that we turn unto the word of God. Here is the means whereby you may mature. Here is the gift that can bring you unto greater growth and maturity in the ways of the Lord. The word of the Lord. And of course, we know that it's not the only place where this sort of language is applied unto the Christian life. Children, I'm sure that you would be familiar with these words from Psalm 23. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, he leadeth me Beside the still waters, he restoreth my soul. There, the good shepherd of the sheep. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, ensures that each one of his lambs, each one of his flock, are given that spiritual nourishment of solid green grass, of refreshing waters, in order that those sheep may not faint, but be revived, be restored and that they may walk in paths of righteousness for the Lord's name's sake. Here is the tender care of Christ for his people, that he has appointed a means of nourishing the spiritual growth of his people, and that through his word. You can also find a picture of this in Psalm 1. Psalm 1. There you have the blessed man, the man who is richly 
bestowed with God's favor and filled with happiness. How is he described in Psalm 1? Blessed is that man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither. Whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Well, here at this point, you may be confused and you may think, well, why is it that God speaks of his law there? We can understand, surely, that here you have the picture of spiritual health, a tree by those rich waters that, that sustains that tree so that it may bear forth fruit. There is the picture of the believer. And yet the, the thing that the waters seem to point to is the law of God. His delight is in the law of the Lord, it says. We need to understand that the word in the Hebrew there is Torah. Torah, which has its most basic idea of teaching. And it includes certainly the commands of God. Included in that is the Ten Commandments, surely. That summary of God's holy will for our lives. But not only the commandments, no. For surely the sinner, if he had only the law of God, only the commandments of God... This could give no true comfort or peace unto his soul, could give no nourishment unto spiritual growth. No. The full teaching of the word of God, the whole Torah, both law and gospel, command and promise is included here. Yes, the commands in order to instruct us in what God's holy will is, but also the gospel The blessed news that Christ Jesus has come. He has fulfilled our salvation. He has come to be our mediator and our substitute and our savior. And these two together, the law and the gospel, comprise the full Torah, the full teaching, the full revelation, which is necessary for our spiritual good. So it is, if we have this understanding, we may more rightly understand what we read earlier on in our, uh, in our worship service in Psalm 19, where it there speaks of the law of the Lord, the Torah of the Lord. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and all to, and righteous altogether. All these manifold perfections ascribed to the word of God here. And the word of God, also as it is inspired by the Holy Spirit and preserved in our Bibles. Every one of these uh, parts of the scriptures is this 
delightful and most glorious means of grace for our spiritual good. Now, the wonderful thing is that this is no private revelation. It's not as though the Christian church is like so many cults or so many cultural communities that may, pri may prize a private group of customs and beliefs and doctrines which bind upon us and none other. No, our interest is not to merely hold on to man-made traditions or creeds. No, by the very word of truth itself, the very word of God for all peoples and for all times is that which we seek. I love what our Belgian Confession summarizes concerning the word of God, and it speaks about it as perfectly harmonious with all other things God has revealed. Look at Article 2 of the Belgic Confession, entitled, By What Means God is Made Known Unto Us. There it says, We know him by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, which is before our eyes as a most elegant book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many characters leading us to contemplate the invisible things of God, namely his divinity and power, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1. All things are sufficient to convince men and leave them without excuse. There is the God we worship, the God of the whole universe, the God who reveals himself through all things, the one of whom Psalm 19 says, even the heavens declare his glory. But that very God has also spoken to us particularly and in a most special and elegant manner. For it says, secondly, he makes himself more clearly, fully known to us by his holy and divine word. That is to say, as far as is necessary for us to know in this life, to his glory and our salvation. There it is. Were it not for this, the word of God, we would each one of us be as blind as moles, groping about in spiritual darkness, here is that which is able to convert the soul and to give sight to the blind, as Psalm 19 teaches us so clearly. Here is that truth upon which all other truth must conform. For this, the pure word of God is given unto us that we may know this God, that we may live well by him, that we may glory in him and that we may have that true and sound salvation in Jesus Christ. Perhaps the most famous uh, testimony of the inspiration of Scripture found in the divine records is 2 Timothy chapter 3. Not many people understand that the context there involves the testimony of one who had the Scriptures from his boyhood. So children, here is what the word of God meant to this little boy who at that point was young called Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 3 
in verse 15, Paul writes to him and says that he had the word of God from a child. Thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And in that context, he gives these famous words, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. What an incredible privilege that is. Even from a little child, he had this, the word of God. Children, I hope you understand that when you open your Bibles or your mommy or daddy reads you the Bible, God is speaking to you. And God is speaking to you right now in his word. And he's saying, I know you. Listen to me. I am the God who speaks. It's incredible uh, uh, in the Greek to look at that verse 16. All of scripture is given by inspiration. Literally, it means all of scripture is breathed of God. Have you sometimes held up this book and, and just looked at it? There's the very breath of God on the page. God has breathed it out. Yes, as Peter says elsewhere, holy men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And they, as it were, were the pens in God's hand. And they, in all their abilities and all their personalities and all of their giftings, were but superintended and used by God to speak, to issue forth words not for any private revelation or communication, but for the church and people of God of all ages, so that whomever comes unto this Bible, they are addressed by God personally and individually. Notice how he says, the word of God is profitable for doctrine. For doctrine. We may read Paul, we may read Isaiah, we may read Peter, we may read Matthew. But each one of these men were but the instruments of God. And they communicate to us not merely information, but teaching, doctrine. It is doctrine that is the very source of spiritual maturation and health and growth. God will not deal with us as though we were unthinking blocks and rocks and sticks. No, he addresses us as his rational creatures with teaching directed unto our minds. He speaks to us in truths that are suitable and rational and able to be received by us. Not, of course, that our feeble minds can comprehend God or his truth. But no, he stoops down and he utters unto us that which is necessary for us to know him. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. But not only so, for reproof, reproof. So here 
is, as it were, we're walking along and all of a sudden the word of God in the most loving way comes along and punches us in the nose. Why? Because we are wandering in the wrong way, in the way of our own choosing. Reproof. You are a sinner. You have transgressed the law of God. You are headed for destruction. Turn away, sinner, for correction. There is a better way, sinner. Not in the way of death, but in the way of life. Not in the way of your own choosing, but of God's appointment. Not in the way of your own wisdom, but the wisdom of God in Christ Jesus. Of Christ and him crucified. Of he who is the way, the truth, and the life. Correct your way, sinner, and turn unto the Savior. And profitable for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Here is the teaching of the sufficiency of Scripture for all that we are called unto do. It says, the man of God, the minister, the preacher, as Timothy was when he received these words. He'd come a long way from that little boy on his mother's knee. But even now he says to Timothy, you need but this, the word of God, nothing more. You do not need the doctrines or the commandments of men. You do not need so many traditions. You do not need peer pressure. You do not need carnal wisdom. You do not need your own ideas. No, only this. The word of God is sufficient, Timothy. How is it that we describe ourselves? We describe ourselves as reformed churches, reformed churches. And that, if it means anything, means this, reformed by the word of God. Reformed does not mean that you have a particular background. It does not mean that merely you identify with a particular tradition. No, to be truly reformed in the most bottom, most authentic sense is that the word of God is your only direction. Oh, that we had truly reformed churches, truly reformed Christians that prize the word of God above all things. And will indeed subject all wisdom and all ideas unto this word alone. That's an incredible uh, portion of the Westminster Shorter Catechism that we've been studying recently in our own family. And if you're familiar with that catechism, there's a section where it expounds for you what every commandment of the Ten Commandments requires and forbids, requires and forbids. If you work through it, it's very difficult for anyone to read that and not come under some measure of conviction for how they fall short. And then in question 85 of that catechism, we read, there, what doth God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? A very, very wonderful question that everyone should ask. How can we escape the wrath and curse of God? And the answer comes to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin. God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life with the diligent use of all the outward means 
whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. Interesting that. Not surprising he mentions faith in Christ. Not surprising there is repentance, but joined to that diligent use of the means of grace. How is it God bestows these benefits of redemption but through his means? When you read on, it describes what those means are. Well, they are, they are the sacraments. Yes, they are prayer. But most importantly, it speaks of the word of God as that means of grace. And then the question comes, in the Catechism 89, how is the word made effectual to salvation? How is it that God is pleased to use this great uh, word of God? And then the answer comes in uh, answer 89. The spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. You see, many people imagine that the teaching that God is sovereign means that God is ultimately random, unpredictable. As though there is one equally likely to be brought unto saving faith as they despise this word, as they refuse to come under subjection to it, as they are to be under the preaching, under the reading, under the authority of God's word. And our fathers thought not so. This word of God is the means of converting the soul. This word of God is all the truth which is necessary for life and godliness. God will bless it. God will use it. But we must never despise it. Now the maturation and the growth in grace through this means of grace, the word of God. I think that here we must hear what the word of God says about itself. You remember from Psalm 19 verse 10. It says that this Torah, this teaching of God is more to be desired. Sorry, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, more than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. There is a most striking thing. These babies, these children that are to receive the word of God, this rational word of God, this pure milk of the word, they are not merely to have it go in their minds. No. It is not merely to direct their steps and actions, but it is something that must also capture their hearts. It is to be desired more than gold. It is to be received as sweeter than honey. So is the consistent teaching elsewhere. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 13. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom and the man that getteth understanding. For the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver. And the gain thereof than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies and all the things 
thou canst desire not to be compared unto her. We think also of that parable of the pearl of great price. There was that merchant man who sold all all that he possessed in order that he may have that precious pearl. So is the believer who becomes acquainted with the things of God. The word of God is more precious than all of this life's treasures. For it is that by which God communicates himself unto us. Listen to what Arthur Pink writes here about this delight in the scriptures. Arthur Pink says this, Spiritual delight necessarily follows spiritual knowledge. For an object cannot be appreciated any further than it is apprehended and known. Spiritual knowledge of spiritual things imparts not only a conviction of their verity and the certainty of their reality, but it also produces the soul's adherence to them, the cleaving of the affections unto them, a holy joy in them, so that they appear inexpressibly blessed and glorious unto those granted a discovery of the same. This is what it means to take such delight in the scriptures that they are more valuable than gold, more sweet than honey. You treasure them as your very life. You see that these words are given not in order to be kept on the shelf, not to be kept in the pew, not to be but another closed book in our homes, but to be that out of which our whole life proceeds. To have the word of God in our midst is to have God speak, to have God present, to have God working. And how miserable it must be to be one who knows nothing of that. How dreadful and how terrible that the word of God would just be another family heirloom, something that perhaps we do not discard, but we keep under glass. We keep under lock and key, distant from us as another thing to be stored away rather than the living word of God, which endures forever in our hearts and lives. Well, here I think we've spoken something of the general, the general uh, principle here, that it's the word of God, the sincere, pure milk of the word, which is the means of spiritual growth. But let me address you now with some specific applications, some specific applications. If we believe everything that has been said, and I would hope that not one of us would even entertain doubts to the contrary. If we believe that the word of God is the means of spiritual growth, how it is that we must act like it. And I would speak to you in the first place about application to the church. Application to the church. I do not believe it's any accident. The very same apostle who addresses us to be newborn babes, desiring the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, also speaks in a similar way in the fifth chapter of this epistle. 
Look with me, will you, in chapter 5 of 1 Peter. There we read, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock which is among you. Feed the flock which is among you. How are they to feed them? Surely, surely with this, the word of God. Just as the good shepherd leads his sheep through the green pastures and by the still waters, so also must the under-shepherds, the elders of the church, attend to this, that the church is fed with the word of God. So also... We have it in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Timothy exhorted, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. You see, the preaching of the word of God and the authoritative proclamation of God's word, it is not entertainment, it is not amusement. And... Its power is not found in this, that it is always appealing to our minds and hearts. No, its power is found in this. God speaks through his word. He blesses the preaching of his word where his servants labor in the word and in prayer in order to not unveil their own ideas, but the will of God for his people. And so it is that the elders and the leaders of the church, the ministers, the ruling elders, and others as well, they must ensure that this church does not remain, does not deviate from what its calling is. They must ensure that the pulpit is guarded. They must ensure that the preaching is based upon this, not the diluted word, Not the compromised word, but the pure and sincere word of God. And all of us must pray. All of us pray that this is never removed from us. We need the word of God. And we need to pray that the under-shepherds would feed the flock. But likewise, let me turn that around and ask the question, is it not also incumbent upon every Christian as a member of Christ's flock to strive to be fed? To be fed. We read, indeed, in the Westminster Catechism, how it is that God works through his spirit to bless the preaching of the word unto the salvation of its hearers. But notice also in question 90 of that catechism, how is the word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? Well, here is some direction for you. How is it you are to rightly receive God's word? And here it comes. That the word may become effectual to salvation, we must attend thereunto with diligence preparation and prayer receive it with faith and love lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives well there's much to be feared 
that many do not profit from the preaching of God's word for, for they failed in precisely these areas. Where is the diligence in listening to prayer with the open Bible, looking at the passage, praying for the Lord to open it unto you? Where indeed is that preparation before the scripture is read, praying that the Lord would open your eyes, ensuring you have enough sleep the night before, ensuring that in the morning hours you have been striving to empty your thoughts of all worldly occupations and to prepare to receive God's truth. Receive it with faith and love, it says, to believe that whatever the weakness of the speaker, that through that humble instrument comes the very word of God to you, that God is speaking unto you, and to love and to light in it as such, to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives, to go home after the service and to ask yourself this question, what must I therefore do with what I have heard? Also, for our applications for the church, I pray that each one of us would have the proper attitude and dispositions to this word of God, that the Lord may not remove his lampstand from us. But let us speak now about applications to the family. Applications to the family. You know, as I was listening and attending to this passage, trying to understand him, I kept on thinking, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. And I thought of, of that general principle, how it is that every Christian needs this nourishment from the word of God. And, and one passage just kept on coming into my mind, and that is from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. But if any provide not for his own, and specifically for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Now, the direct um, principle there is one of monetary provision, ensuring that your wife and children are suitably provided for with a roof over their head and food on their table and so forth. But surely we can see that there's a broader principle at work. It would be a dreadful thing if any head of household would deny their children and those under their authority food for the body. How much more terrible to deny them food for their souls. Remember, do we not, that Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 instructs, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It is falling upon us as the heads of our home to ensure that all those under our authority are given this spiritual nourishment. And I put to each one of us that if we may ensure that our wives and our children have food on the table, we may ensure that the word of God is read unto them. We may ensure that it is prayed over, that day by day we lead our family in family worship, needing not to be complicated or drawn out, but ensuring that, that we instruct them from the word of God and we remind them that this is what our family is about. We are a family built on God's word. Even it's, 
Interesting, when it speaks of the role of husbands in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he may sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. There seems to be, in particular, a sort of prophetic office of the husband, in a sense. As we lead our wives, as we instruct our families and our marriages, it must be based on this, that we understand what the word of God says to us, and we govern our households by this common mission, that we know the Lord, that we obey the Lord, and that we strive to know the Lord. Any marriage that is built on anything else other than this, a husband and wife grasping hold of this, a common authority in the word of God and a common communion with Christ in the word is not likely to be strong. And I tell you, you must take courage, men. Though we are weak in ourselves, Christ gives the strength. He will enable you in your context to indeed bring this word of God to bear in your life. And I tell you that nothing can substitute for them. Not the ministry of the church, not the ministry of a school, not certainly this godless culture. It is up to us to ensure that our families are based upon this, the word of God. God, give us strength. I would leave... Um, us with this, the personal application, the personal application of these things, the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. Consider those words from Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth praise the psalmist and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord my strength and my redeemer. That same psalm, which so speaks of the purity and the beauty and the use of God's word, it it speaks of this as well, the meditation of your heart. That is what it is about, that we meditate upon these things, Not that it is just in the mouth immediately to be consumed, but that we roll it over our tongues. That we consider the taste and the texture of every portion of God's word. That we chew on on God's word. That we mull over it. That we think, how does this relate to me? How does this relate to my own experience? How does this relate to Christ? How does this relate to what he's done for me? All these things, all these things, they are relevant. How dreadful it is that we may have a Bible reading plan to shoot through the Bible in a year. But if that, however profitable that is, if that is not joined with this, the reflecting on it, the consideration of it, the self-application of the word of God to us, and we are liable to fall short of the growth and the maturity that the Lord has for us. I put to you that this is not optional. This is utterly necessary. The word of God is the means of nurturing spiritual growth. Let us seek the Lord's grace. Let us pray for his blessing. And let us attend to the word of truth. Amen.